With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. We've talked a lot about the brain on this podcast. We've had one of my favorite guests, Stanford neuroscientist Andrew Huberman, been on twice. In general, a lot of the topics have been about how to be more creative, how to be more deductive, how to be smarter, if I can use that phrase. And I was really happy today to have Lisa Feldman Barrett on, who's a neuroscientist, and she wrote a book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. I learned a lot about how the brain works, and she gave a lot of pointers about how to keep the brain healthy and smarter and even younger. Here we go. Here's Lisa Feldman Barrett. Thank you so much for having me. No, thanks for educating me. It was such a great book. Thank you. Seven and a half lessons about the brain. We have Lisa Feldman Barrett, a professor of neuroscience at Northeastern University. And you also wrote a book, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. And I feel like your book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, could also be called Seven and a Half Myths About the Brain, because we have all these associations with what the brain does. And as I learned from your book, they're kind of all wrong. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Well, <laughs> well, you know, we have, we have, uh, the kind of brain that, you know, like, like likes to deceive itself or, or maybe say it's a master of deception, the human brain, right? It creates experiences and guides behavior while at the same time leading us to believe that the products our actual experiences actually reveal how it works and uh, our experiences don't reveal how the brain works. And we just keep learning that lesson again and again and again. You know, I like how you start the first chapter. It's kind of like an introduction, but you say your brain is not for thinking. I know what you mean by that now that I've read through this, but it seems like the basic conception is, is that the brain is for thinking. And we think because my guesstimate before doing this podcast and before reading your book is my assumption is that humans are kind of weak and wimpy primates compared to basically every other primate and that we needed a strong brain in order to compete for for food essentially and so that's how i have always viewed that's not how i've always viewed the brain but that's how i think about the brain right now but your book changes the conceptions for me somewhat you know there are a lot of animals who are born much more competent than humans. I mean, like a human infant is pretty pathetic in certain ways when you compare to a chimp or a dog or pathetic in a way. I mean, we're born when we're born. We can't really we can't even burp by ourselves. You know, we can't really the you know, the infant brain is infant human brain is is a, not a miniature adult brain. And it's a brain that 
is waiting for wiring instructions from the world. But actually, there's a secret superpower sort of hidden in that weakness. And that is that, like many other animals that have very large brains relative to their body size, our brains do most of their development after birth. So an infant brain is really not finished and the extent to which it wires itself to its surroundings is quite amazing. And that's actually a strength in the end because it allows us to have culture, to create civilizations, to do all kinds of fantastical things. But we are pretty, we are pretty pathetic when we're born. We're cute and we can't really do much else by ourselves. That's why we're cute because we need other people to keep us alive. Yeah, I always, I always tell people that if I, let's say I were to go to a Broadway show for three hours and they're even an intermission. If I brought my dog with me, I could just tie the dog to a pole outside. If I brought my baby with me and I tied the baby to a pole outside, anything could happen. The baby might die. I might get arrested. Like babies are just useless. And even dogs are more competent than babies at that point. Well, I, th again, I would say, you know, um, the, one of the brain's most important jobs is to control the body it's attached to. And uh, an infant brain can't control its own body, can't feed itself, can't put on a sweater when it's cold, can't put itself to sleep even. You know, all these things have to be learned. And they're learned because of the experiences that are curated for that infant by their caregivers. And those experiences every really simple things, you know, like feeding the baby, clothing the baby, holding the baby, singing to the baby, cuddling the baby, all these things actually have a profound impact on the baby's brain wiring because infant brains are born unfinished. They're really under construction and they take 25 years more or less to finish wiring. And even then there's sort of continual change that goes on. So I think the important thing to realize is that sometimes strength and miraculous things can come from what uh, what looks like weakness well i i remember uh reading something about learning when when you learn something as as a kid or let's say under the age of 25 the brain is more capable of developing i forgot what it's called this sheath between parts of the brain so that some memories you know stay longer so they become like skills and and that's why it's harder to learn something necessarily uh later in life yeah i mean i think uh Yes and no. So I think what's that sheath called that I'm I'm referring to? I, I forget. I think what you're referring to is myelin that yes. wraps. Uh, so a brain cell has a long um, electrical uh, wire that sticks out of it. You know, called an axon, and the myelin is basically a fatty wrapping that develops around the wires to speed conduction, so that um, neurons can speak to each other with more speed. Um, and myelination, that is the wrapping of the wires, definitely develops after birth and continues to develop. And I mean, the brain is this really, really fascinating structure. Actually, even as we're talking right now, there are little nubs that your neurons are forming on their branchy um, top parts called dendrites, that these little nubs just, they're like little foraging for information. And they just, they continue to grow and they continue to pop up, can sort of randomly and continuously. 
And only the ones that we end up using to learn something new are the ones that stay and then the other ones die back. But that in the 10 minutes that you and I have been talking, that's been happening continuously in both of our brains. And actually, as your listeners have been listening, it's happening in their brains too. And so, you know, again, you say the brain is not for thinking and you also say the brain is, you know, there to kind of regulate all these parts of our body, like breathing, all these basic functions of the body that we're not even you know, on the surface aware of our, our heart beating, maybe, you know, the healing of, a, of an injury or the wiping out of a, an illness, all these things. What, what parts of the brain are kind of closer to the surface where they are more involved in our decision-making in our problem solving and so on? Well, you know, uh, what I would say is that I would change your question actually. So, you know, it's not like the regulation of your body happens in one part of your brain and decision-making happens in some other part of your brain and seeing happens in some other part of your brain. That's not really, uh, there are certainly people who still think about the brain functioning that way, but there are many people who don't. And another way to think about the brain is that you think and see and feel and make decisions in the service of regulating your body. That is how the wiring is set up in your brain. So decision-making is a whole brain activity. It's not something that happens in one spot. And the regulation of your body is something that happens as a whole brain activity. It's not um, happening in one spot. So it's a little bit like many things are happening at the same time, and um, there are certain players, let's say in, in regulating your body, there are certain players that have a, you know, that are the stars of that show. And then there are a lot of background characters, but they all have a role to play. But if you were thinking about, let's say, thinking, you know, there would be other parts of the brain that would be the stars and the rest of it would be the background. So even for seeing you know, so it turns out the neurons in your brain that people for a long time thought scientists thought were dedicated to seeing also carry information about touch and about hearing. I could blindfold you for an hour and uh, all of a sudden the neurons that are supposed to be responsible for seeing would step up into a more major role to code for touch and hearing. So, you know, neurons do more than one thing. They don't have one job. They don't have an infinite number of jobs, but they have more than one job. And so decision-making occurs as part of the body regulation process, even when it doesn't seem as if your body is involved. Because everything you do, everything you learn requires metabolic resources and your brain's job is to budget those resources. Right, so a lot of times, you know, they, they open up a brain and they tell you something sad or happy or bring back a memory and they could see which parts of your brain are, are lighting up or are excited. But you mentioned in the book that there really isn't parts of the brain that are dedicated to this or dedicated to your family memories or dedicated to you know your athletic skills or dedicated to happiness. So what's happening when when in these previous studies that's different from what we know now? Well, first of all, it doesn't happen very often that you would open up a human brain and actually measure individual neurons firing. That's a pretty uh, intense thing to do. And it only happens usually in, when someone is preparing to have an operation. And even in animals, uh, non-human animals, when you open up an animal's brain and you record, you're not recording from every neuron in the brain. You're recording from, you know, a couple of sites maybe in the brain. And so 
you don't know whether what you're measuring is the only spots in which the neurons are active. And in fact, so you're only getting like a very, very small slice of what's actually going on, a very, very small part of the picture. And so, for example, we're humans. If I stick a person's head in a brain scanner and I just speak some words to them, you can see changes in act and their eyes are closed. You can see changes in activity in the parts of the brain that are very important for vision. And even though the line completely stock still, you can see changes in activity in the parts of the brain that are important for movement and for regulating the body and for regulating the immune system and for regulating uh, metabolism. And the person is completely still. So my point is that even just understanding the meaning of words, right, like right now, actually recruits huge swaths of your brain that weren't originally thought to be part of understanding words. There's a really great study that I love that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in the U.S. in 2012. And what these scientists did is they just had someone, they had people do a very, what's called simple attention task, a visual attention task. So they presented circles that had lines oriented one way inside versus lines oriented another way. It's really, really simple task. What they showed is if you actually design the study properly, you test the person for long enough and you model the data in a very sensitive way, you can show that just a simple task like that recruits changes in 85% of the brain. So my point, I guess, is that, um, again, neurons don't do everything, but they do more than one thing. And they often do more than one thing at the same time. And um, this is why it's really, in some ways, scientifically better to think about a brain as a complex network than it is to think about a brain as like a puzzle or like, um, you know, like a Lego structure where the parts are separable and talk to each other in these, you know, pass information back and forth, like, uh, you know, where this area does this function and passes information to this area, which does this function. That's a very old outdated way of, of understanding how a brain works, I think. You know, and I think I think part of the idea of your book is to show, it's almost how, how Galileo shows that, you know, man is not, the, the entire universe doesn't revolve around the earth. Man <laughs> is not the most important creature uh, in the universe. And it's the same thing here where, you know, our brain might not necessarily be, you know, what makes us so special compared to other animals. They all have brains. Some are very complex. Some are yeah. evolved to solve different problems. So why did our brain, the human brain evolve the way it has? How is it continuing to evolve? Like what's going on here? Why do we have brains? Yeah, that's a great question. I love that question. I, you know, it's a little tricky, right? Because it's really hard to say why brains evolved. Philosophers call the why question teleology. Like why did this happen? And you know, all we can do is kind of guess. But there are some pretty good guesses, I think, that are around. One interesting guess that has, you know, increasing amounts of support is that 550 million years ago, creatures on the earth and in the sea, well, they were all in the sea, didn't have brains, right? The world was ruled by creatures without brains. And as I like to say, it feels right now, actually, to some extent, like the world <laughs> is ruled with creatures who don't have brains, but apparently they do. 
Every, every one of my podcasts has to get political at some point. That's yeah, okay. I know, right? It's like, we time each other. How long does it take in a conversation to, to start? But anyways, something happened. And what happened is that animals started to hunt each other. So originally, if you looked at what creatures did, they certainly ate each other, but it was really in a passive way. So there's this little creature called an amphioxus, or its its um its other name is a lancet. And it's really similar. It's not an ancient creature, it's a modern creature, but it's a creature that's really similar to a very, very ancient ancestor that we have. It hasn't really changed very much in, you know, 500 million years. And basically it kind of wriggles its way in the water, plants itself in the sand and just filters food. Like it doesn't have eyes, it doesn't have ears, it doesn't sense anything really. And then when the concentration of food has reduced, it just unroots itself, wiggles somewhere else randomly and plants itself down again, assuming that there'll be more food there, you know, just statistically speaking. But at some point, animals start to hunt each other. And that required growing senses, being able to see and hear. And, you know, like when something is up ahead of you, is that thing going to eat you? Should you eat it? Like, is it worth it to do that? And as that happened, the environment that animals lived in got bigger, meaning what scientists call a niche, you know, the livable space for them got bigger. And as that happened, their bodies got bigger and bodies ended up growing all kinds of systems in them, like hearts, cardiovascular systems, like for heart and a respiratory system for lungs and a really complicated immune system that could learn from experience and all this gunk and junk inside. And brains evolved as animals evolved to sense the world and to have an internal world to regulate. So the way I like to think of it is, you know, your brain is running a budget for your body and it's not budgeting water, it's budgeting glucose and salt and all the other nutrients. And it doesn't have one, you know, one bank account to, it doesn't have one account to balance. It has like hundreds of accounts with hundreds of offices you know, all around the world. So it's kind of like, a, you know, the head of a multinational corporation. And it's trying to keep everything in balance in a very uncertain and noisy world. That's why we have brains. So we don't, the brains really didn't evolve to think. You think because it's helpful to regulating your body budget. You feel because it's helpful to regulating your body budget. You see because it's helpful to regulating your body budget. And decision-making, it's not like your brain sort of thinks about something, decides to make a decision, and then makes an action plan for executing that decision. What your brain is really doing is it's making guesses based on what's happening right now. It makes a guess about what's going to happen in a minute from now. And it starts to prepare your actions for that minute from now. And that is the decision. So there's no, the meaning analysis is rooted in the regulation of the body. It's not like, you know, your brain does some kind of abstract evaluation and then prepares you to move or prepares your heart rate to go up or whatever. The changes that it's preparing for your body is the meaning of what's happening. And that has really profound implications when you really poke at it a little bit. Like what? Like when things are really uncertain, you will experience an increase in arousal. I don't mean sexual arousal. I mean 
like you'll feel jittery and for lack of a better word, anxious. When your body budget is running a deficit, you feel like shit, basically. Is that because so uncertainty is kind of overwhelming this ability to try to sense what's happening? No, it's because your brain is always, the way that a really efficient system works is to predict what's gonna happen and correct rather than wait for something to happen and then react to it. So all brains work predictably. They're, they're structured anatomically to work that way and they work metabolically and electrically most efficiently when they're predicting and correcting. So your brain's always making predictions about what's gonna happen. And when it can't make a prediction, it's gonna try to learn something new in order to predict better the next time. And learning is a metabolically costly thing that you do. It doesn't feel that way to you necessarily. Although sometimes, you know, um, learning feels hard and it feels unpleasant. And that's because it's requiring a withdrawal from your body budget, essentially. But some of the chemicals that your brain depends on to learn are associated with feeling really worked up. So uncertainty is a very metabolically expensive state to be in. It's a state that humans, you know, like some of us like novelty some of the time, some of us like uh, novelty, you know, a little more or a little less, but unexpected uncertainty is something that most humans try to avoid. And that's because it's unpleasant and expensive. People will go to great lengths not to learn and not to be surprised and maintain things as being very predictable when they are basically metabolically encumbered or like running a deficit in their body budget. Right. So that's what I meant by how it's, it's suddenly overwhelmed and doesn't know which, uh, and I don't know how to describe this in terms of the brain, but it's, it's overwhelmed in some way when there's uncertainty um, because there's too many choices. So it, it, so it can't make a decision. Yes, but I think that's that's like a very extreme version of a whole continuum, right? So right now, there are a lot of people walking around feeling really anxious, um, but I would say, or feeling really depressed, and I would say what may be at the basis of that is that we live in a culture that is sort of maximally designed to bankrupt our body budgets. We live in a culture where people don't sleep enough, they don't eat healthfully, they don't exercise on a regular basis. We all um, were on, you know, social media, which is inherently full of social ambiguity, which is extremely hard on a human. That was true to begin with. And then now there's all this other extra stuff going on, COVID and the political um, concerns and, and, and serious financial concerns that go with it, uh, real financial concerns that also are stressful, that is also have an impact on, the, on your body budget. So I think right now, one way to understand the struggles that people are having is, is that they are, they're not reducible to metabolism, but they certainly are related to body budgeting problems. And this is important because what is stress? Stress is a big withdrawal from your body budget. And um, that kind of a stress, it's, any kind of stress is okay for you in the long run, as long as you, after you make a huge withdrawal, you, you know, you make a deposit. So if you're going to exercise, you make a huge withdrawal, you spend a lot of energy, and then you you replenish that energy. But if you don't, and you just spend, 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 
you'll bankrupt uh, your body budget. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like depression. It looks like uh, some anxiety disorders. It looks like heart disease. It, that's what chronic stress is, in fact. And right now, chronic stress is a very dangerous thing because people who are chronically stressed also are more susceptible to developing respiratory illness uh, upon exposure to viruses like the coronavirus. It's it's interesting, you mentioned social media because there's so many anonymous people or anonymous accounts on social media. And often when someone's anonymous, they feel, oh, I could say anything. So they tend to be more verbally aggressive, more you know, throwing insults around. And you mentioned in the book how all this verbal aggression creates some stress on the brain. Because the brain doesn't, I guess the brain doesn't know this is an anonymous troll on Twitter, or this might be your best friend. It doesn't, it seems like it doesn't really make that much of a distinction. It just says this is verbal aggression. And so you feel that stress, hence why social media might not be so great for people. Well, I think, yeah, I, I think that that's right, but I, I would probably put some caveats in there. So I think for example, um, right now you and I are having conversation and even though we don't know each other very well, we can see each other. So we can see each other and we can hear each other's voices and we can hear the intonation pattern. So there's a context here. There's a spatial context and there's also a temporal context because I've already just said a bunch of things and so have you and we're, we're building up experience with each other. But when you receive an email or a text or, you know, any other, you know, any of these other platforms, there's the context is impoverished meaning there's just not a lot of extra information and words on their own are ambiguous into their meaning in the best of times. So, you know, that's why people start using emojis, but emojis are also have their own sort of ambiguity that goes with them. Um, They don't necessarily always clarify things. They might just help a little bit with um, guessing whether somebody means well or not. But even then, you know, they don't work as well as for what they were intended for, which was to completely disambiguate a message. So I think that's part of it is that there's just, when there's less information available, less context, your brain will just supply it. It will make guesses. Sometimes those guesses are, you know, not the right ones. I think that's part of it. I also think that, I think we have to understand that you are often interacting with people, you don't know who they are, and you don't know what their intent is. So if somebody texts me like, hey, bitch, that could be, hi, honey, that could be, I hate your guts. I mean, like, you know, and the fact that I don't know is actually really hard on my brain, right? Not because I'm a snowflake, but because I'm human. And this is how it is for all humans. So, um, you know, the best thing for a human nervous system is often another human. But the worst thing for a human nervous system is often another human. And I think part of what I was trying to do in the book is just give a little bit of a glimpse into why, like why are our brains so entwined with each other? How did that happen and how does it work and what does it mean? And I'm not really telling people what to do with it. I'm more just wanting to get people to think about it but think about it in a way that, you know, that I'm sort of trying to introduce it in a way that's sort of fun and more accessible as opposed to having to read a 400 page book, you know? It does seem though with all of this that, again, a lot of 
the evolution of different brains and different animals is related to how each animal evolves to find food. Well, that's part of it. It's food and mates, but food is definitely a big part of it for sure. Because like it, it didn't like in the first, whatever you call it, there was a lot of serotonin in the gut, which is so serotonin is this neurochemical. There was a lot in the gut, but now we view that as. I think this is a really good example. So serotonin, dopamine, this is true for dopamine too, evolved as metabolic regulators. Dopamine did not evolve to be a reward neurotransmitter and serotonin was not a mood neurotransmitter. They evolved as chemicals to regulate metabolism. And in fact, serotonin is one of the major metabolic regulators in your body. So the biggest source of serotonin comes from your gut, actually the cells in your gut. Now your brain also makes serotonin and that's also not an accident by the way, because when we think about evolution and we think about brain evolution, we're usually focusing only on the brain, but it turns out when you go from this um, you know, little animal, which sort of looks like an amphioxus, that's the precursor to vertebrates, like us and invertebrates like insects and octopuses and stuff. Vertebrates, when they evolved a brain, also evolved an enteric nervous system, that's your gut, and evolved viscera like your lungs and your heart and stuff, and a head and eyes and ears and a nose and stuff. So all of your senses, or not all, but like most of your senses, having a head and having a brain and having internal systems in your body all evolve together at the same time. So what makes vertebrates special is not necessarily just a backbone, it's all this other stuff. And the fact that your gut uses serotonin and your brain uses serotonin as chemicals to regulate things is not an accident. You can see it in the embryology for how things develop actually in the vertebrate part, which is called a neural crest, which only vertebrate embryos have. So in your brain, serotonin, it certainly is involved in mood, but its main job has to do with tracking metabolic spending and metabolic deposits. So re tracking rewards and tracking spending. So for example, if you're low on serotonin, it will be hard for you to spend now in the absence of an immediate reward, meaning, it will be hard for you to explore the world and sort of make an investment with the hopes that someday there'll be a, a return. So without enough serotonin, you can't really do that. Serotonin lets you sort of spend now and reap the rewards later. Without serotonin, you, you can't really do that. And what that means is that what are the two most expensive things that your brain does? It moves your body and it learns something new. So without serotonin, enough serotonin, you're tired, you're really fatigued, you feel like crap, and you are fuzzy headed, you can't learn very well, and you might avoid novelty or avoid interacting with people that you don't know very well or whose opinions you don't like or, and so on and so forth, because those are all really metabolically taxing activities. Similarly, cortisol is not a stress hormone. It's a hormone that gets glucose into your bloodstream really fast because your brain is predicting that you need it. So right before you wake up in the morning, 
you have a cortisol surge. Before you exercise, you have a cortisol surge. So cortisol is not a stress hormone. It's a hormone that does something metabolically that happens to occur during moments of stress, but it also happens to occur regularly throughout the day whenever your brain or your body needs, you know, glucose. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. 
Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMSS. HIMSS, H-I-M-S, HIMSS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gotta use him from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So I guess the challenge is, you know, given these understandings that you write about of eliminating some of the myths around the brain and talking about the functionality of the brain and how it evolves, what can I do to optimize functioning? So for instance, you know, the brain as not quite predictive, but being in that cycle of seeing things or smelling things or whatever, and then making decisions and make, and making predictions and taking actions based on that. Some people do it better than others. Sherlock Holmes deduces better than me. What can I do to um, be like in that movie, Limitless? I want my brain super functioning. Yeah, well, if I could tell you the answer to that, then we'd both be we'd both be set for life, I think. So But um, but you but you are like a genius on the brain. You maybe you are doing that. <laughs> well, I think that there are some things that we can do for sure, but when I say these things, I always have to warn people. It's like I I'm going to tell you what I think as a neuroscientist, but I'm I'm going to sound like your mother. So, here goes. Here are some things you can do sleep enough. That would be the first one. Sleep is a really important, miraculous thing that, you know, lots of important things happen to the brain while it's sleeping. And again, I'm going to use phrases I don't really know, so I might be the wrong phrase. Doesn't it like send these fluids uh, all through the brain, kind of like cleaning out supposedly the plaque that causes Alzheimer's? Well, yeah. So what, what, yes, close. So um, one thing that happens when you sleep is your the immune system in your brain and the cells that support it 
kind of clean out the gunk, the metabolic, you know, waste from the day's activities. And if you don't sleep enough, that waste doesn't go away. And it is like a small tax on your cells that over time, small tax, like little tax, but over time builds up to a massive debt. You know, when I said, what happens when you're running a budget and your budget goes into the red? What do you do? You stop spending. What are the two most important things that your brain does that are expensive? Move your body and learn new things. And so it will try to reduce its spending by fatigue, causing fatigue and uh, stopping learning. But if your brain can't sufficiently reduce its costs, the next thing that it will do is it will start getting rid of the expense. And that means killing neurons because neurons are expensive little buggers. So in a sense, I mean, I'm speaking metaphorically, but in a sense, the metabolic costs of a, an imbalanced body budget in the short term might be mood related. In the long term, they are physical illnesses like heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, all of these have some kind of metabolic basis. And I'm not saying that metabolism is the only thing that is important here. So I'm not reducing these very complicated illnesses to one thing. But I am saying that if you sleep enough, if you hydrate sufficiently and eat healthfully, which actually is harder than you might imagine in this day and age, if you exercise, exercise is really important because the same parts of the brain that are important for regulating your body are also really important for memory and attention. They're exactly the same parts of the brain. And actually exercise is one way that you can improve your memory and improve your ability to learn things and actually kind of think faster because really what you're doing when you exercise is you're also exercising you're also using those neurons. And you know the brain is kind of a use it or lose it sort of a structure. It's really these kinds of things. You know, There are other things that you can do too, I think, to optimize your performance in terms of thinking and, and decision-making and so on. But, but those couple of things actually take you a pretty, pretty long way. So, so learning is almost something that happens by standing on the shoulders of giants where those giants are memories. So what does happen with a memory? Like, and, and again, you discussed this in the book, but like what's, how does a memory get, get formed? How do we preserve it so that our memories are good enough to increase our ability to learn? So again, you're asking me a really tough question and scientists are still working out the nuts and bolts of how memories are formed. It's not, I, but I think there are some gist level things that we know about memories. And one thing that we know is that the way that I sort of describe it is, is your brain is trapped in a dark, silent box called your skull. And your brain is receiving information from the world and from the body all the time. This information are the effects of things that are happening. So things are happening out in the world, things are happening in your body. Your brain receives the consequences of those things. It doesn't know what the causes are. So for example, I was just listening to a talk yesterday where I learned for the first time, I didn't know this, 
the ability to perceive a drop of rain on your skin is this really complicated combination of sense data about temperature and touch. Because we don't have wetness receptors in our skin. We understand texture though, right? We understand texture, but we don't understand wetness. So wet, there is no wetness. Uh, there's nothing that detects wetness on your skin, but there is something that detects temperature change, and there is something that detects touch. And the combination of those two actually in your brain allows you to perceive a feeling of wetness on your skin, in your underarms, or you know, on your face, or on your hands, or whatever. So let's say there's some change in temperature on your skin. What, what caused that? I mean, your brain has to, that's the effect of some cause. What's the cause? Your brain has to guess. It's so, this is what philosophers call a re reverse inference problem. You know the effects, but you don't know the cause. You have to guess the cause. So how does your brain guess the cause? It uses past experience or what we colloquially call memory. Now, it's not like you're walking around trying to remember. Your brain basically is using past experiences that it can re-conjure in its wiring to make a pretty decent guess about what the current sense data mean, what caused them. So your brain knows what to do about it. So when you have an ache in your gut, what caused it? Are you hungry? What about like problem solving, puzzle solving? A, is this exercise for, you know, getting the neurons to keep talking to each other and sure. exercising those neurons? And, and B, what are the best mental exercises or activities? I get it with the sleep, the exercise and food yeah, yeah. and so on. So here's what I would say. You've got to do things that hurt a little, that are like a little hard to do, right? So just doing like Sudoku puzzles or whatever, Sudoku or whatever it's called, you know, like little puzzles, that's not going to help keep you fit upstairs. What you have to do is learn an instrument, learn a new language, learn how to paint, um, learn um, how to ski, or learn how to, you know, hike. But actually, something that requires enough effort that it sometimes can feel a little unpleasant. Because, you know, feeling bad doesn't necessarily mean something's wrong. It might mean that you're working hard to learn something. So if you continue to press yourself to learn new things, in general, you will keep your brain healthier. And in fact, we study these people who are, I didn't name them super agers, but that is what they're called. And they're people who are over the age of 65 who have healthful brains, whose brains structurally look just like a 25 year old's. And they perform in their memory and um, their attention and so on is just like a 25 year old's, literally no statistical difference at all. And, you know, we're studying them now to try to figure out what's, how did they, get to have such youthful brains and youthful memories. So how is it that they're such successful agers? And one hypothesis is that um, they are continually challenging themselves to, to learn new things. Hmm. You know, you talk about the role of creativity in the book, but what's the evolutionary function of creativity? Like why are some people more creative than others? How did it happen? Why do we need creativity? Well, creativity is, a, is one, it's one ability in a suite of abilities that when you put them together, 
is a very potent cocktail in a human brain. So there are a lot of animals that are creative, but creativity is um, like an investment in the future, right? It's something that's, again, you know, it's expensive um, to do, um, metabolically speaking. Um, your brain can do this thing called what we call conceptual combination, that it can take bits and pieces of past experience and combine them in new ways to allow you to experience and do new things that you've never done before. This alone doesn't make a human brain special. I don't know that anyone knows why creativity evolved. Lots of animals have it in spades, but we have it along with other capacities, what I call the five C's in the book. Actually, there are six C's, but I only discuss five of them. What's um, the sixth? I've, I know about the five in the book. Yeah, so concepts. So it turns out that um, your brain actually, so remember I said, you know, your brain is in a dark silent box and it uses past experience um, to make sense of, of sensory data coming in from the world and from the body. And so what your brain is sort of asking itself metaphorically is not what is this stuff, it's what is this like? What is this like in my past experience? So right now I'm smelling something, seeing something, tasting something. What is this like in my past experience? It's basically making a, a judgment or a guess about similarity. What was similar to this in my past? That's going to be my guess for what's causing this, whatever this sensory array is. In psychology, a group of things which are similar in some way is a category. And a representation of a category is a concept. So what your brain is doing all the time when it's remembering is it's making concepts. Not like a laundry list of like, you know, a bird has wings and it has, you know, feathers and it has, a, it's making, it's remembering, it's cre recreating a set of representations that were similar to what's going on for you right now in the, but that happened in the past. And it's preparing your body to act in much the same way that it did those prior times. So this is fascinating because it's building up in this biological argument to what Daniel Kahneman builds up from a psychological or even economic viewpoint about cognitive biases you're, and, and what you call yeah. the brain constructing the social reality, even if it's not the real reality. And so cognitive biases are great because it allows the brain to form these shortcuts to better deal with the world and more quickly make decisions. But also they could be bad because your cognitive biases could lead you to misunderstand something. They're, things are not as similar as you thought. And so how exactly. can you build the creativity and the resources in your brain to overcome these cognitive biases, to become a little better than what you were. Yeah, you can. And one of the things you can do is read my book because part of being able to overcome bias or let's say be a little bit more in control of the concepts that your brain makes is to understand how your brain works and understand what you need to do in order to give yourself the possibility of having more flexibility in the kinds of concepts that your brain makes. You know, you talk about, you mentioned social reality. In social reality, we haven't talked about this for your listeners. A lot of the things that we take for granted as physical reality are actually social reality. You know, draw a line in the sand and get everyone to agree that it's a boundary of a country. And all of a sudden you have citizens and immigrants. That's very serious in terms of physical consequences for people. But that's a completely made up concept, completely made up. Right, and it's what, it's what Yuval Harari refers to as a story. 
and his view is that, you know, in his book, Sapiens and Homo Deus, is that humans, and he may or may not be wrong, but humans are the only species capable of telling stories over vast groups of other humans so that we all cooperate with each other because millions of people can believe the same story. Yeah, exactly. So really, I mean, one way that we influence each other's nervous systems and, and each other's actions, right, is that we can use words and symbols to um, influence. I'm using words and symbols to influence what is going on in your brain. And you're doing the same to me. And that has actual physical consequences for the body. But, you know, something is only a super ability when you know that you have it and you know how to wield it well. And so if you want to use social reality to your benefit, if you want to have a bit more agency and control in your life, you need to understand how brains do it. And in a very short essay, I've sort of given people some pointers about how the human brain, in collaboration with other human brains, creates social reality so effectively that we believe that it is physical reality. And we are in some ways tricked into thinking that we are just responding to that reality instead of helping to create it on a regular basis. So I guess final question is, what's a thought? What does a thought look like? It's a pattern of electrical activity in your brain. Just like a feeling is a pattern of electrical activity in your brain. And as I like to remind myself and my family, somebody else's opinion of you is just a pattern of electrical activity in their brain. So, you know. All right. Well, you know, it's an enlightening, an enlightening book. And I encourage people to read it. I'm going to read the title, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. Uh, highly recommend it. And particularly the discussions about social reality and how you can control all the people around you to believing in your social reality. <laughs> and thank you once again, Lisa. I hope you come on again because I actually have more questions, but I know you have to go and uh, I appreciate the time. I would love to come on again. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Lisa. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.